You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I'm not sure any of you are old enough to remember 1942. I won't ask you to raise your hand. If you were, you probably wouldn't remember that a book was published that year under the name The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read it, and if you do, you know that it's a fictional set of correspondence set written from one demon to another. Now, you may think, what in the world kind of person writes a work of fiction that is basically supposed to be letter writing between devils? And that's a fair question, I suppose. Lewis wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters. Screwtape was the elder demon. Uh, He was the kind of mentor to his nephew, Wormwood, who was the younger demon, kind of the demon in training. And so you kind of get a sense for how they relate, and they they reflect on strategies, and they reflect on uh, how difficult it can be to war against Jesus and the Spirit, and yet how they are persevering in the different kinds of strategies. And so Lewis wrote the book to sort of invite us to think about things from the enemy's perspective. Maybe to think about how, how the devils and the demons strategize and act with cunning and deception to mislead and to destroy us. In one letter, the question arises as to whether the younger demon, Wormwood, should reveal himself to the specific human to whom he's been assigned. He's always called the patient in the novel. Your patient, kind of a misrepresentation of the physician-doctor relationship, or a twist on it. And so Wormwood raises the question, apparently, should I, as I'm tempting and trying to mislead and trying to deceive and practice cunning, should I reveal myself? You know, maybe there's this fearful thing and this destructive development in revealing myself. And, and Screwtape reminds him that it is the policy of hell. He, he says, he, he calls Satan our father below. It is the policy of our father below to never reveal ourselves unless it is a crucial, last-minute, absolute necessity. And why is that? Why would the demons rather remain unknown or hidden? And the logic goes, well, hey, you know, if they don't know we're here, then we have more weapons in our arsenal to kind of deceive them with. And so we can sort of Launch those flaming arrows the Apostle Paul talks about related to deceit or deception. Or even more problematic, just distraction. You know, you're tired and who wants to pray when they're tired? And the enemy is in a position to just kind of, well, here's some other things you should do. Screwtape says, if you, if you reveal yourself... All of those strategies are gone, and he knows it's you. We'd much rather our patients, <laughs> the humans, 
not know there's a battle happening. We'd rather be able to attack them and them never realize they're under attack. Lewis's point, of course, is that spiritual warfare is a real thing. Spiritual warfare is a real thing. And he wanted his readers to realize that ignorance of that warfare, ignorance of that battle, plays directly into the hands of the enemy. You can imagine what it would be like for two nations to be at war and only one of them to realize it. (laughs) It would be pretty easy to confound and confuse and destroy if the nation on defense didn't realize there was a battle happening. And Lewis wants us to think about that in light of our spiritual experience, in light of our Christian experience. And he recognized, Lewis recognized that human beings, people, us, you and me, easily, we're prone to walk through life just kind of nine to five, or I got my shift, I got to work, and my kids have got some things, and there's homework to do, and sports, and the preacher keeps calling, asking us to help out with some stuff at church, and we got a lot going on, and we can just kind of go through life, and go from one thing to the next, and never pause. I mean, we can go weeks, months, maybe years without pausing to reflect on the reality that every day there is an invisible enemy attempting to destroy us. And Paul addresses this in Ephesians 6 with his language of this, the armor of God and his insistence that you have an enemy and his, he is the devil and he has this cadre of authorities and powers who are associated with him and they are warring against you and if you want to be successful you've got to be prepared and aware of that this is what paul is saying to us forthrightly you can't win a battle you don't know you're fighting if there is one thing to sum up as we Dig in. We're going to see this again and again and again with this this armor of God language and the way Paul describes spiritual warfare. He would want us, with all of our busyness and all of our distractions and all of our sometimes complacency and sometimes enthusiasm, to realize that there is a war happening on a daily basis and many of us are ignorant of it. We're just not paying attention. You can't win a battle You don't know you're fighting. Crucial to winning any battle is knowing who the enemy is. As I was reflecting on this text this week and kind of thinking about battle, and I don't typically think about warfare when I'm preaching a sermon, but I thought, hey, you know, sermon prepping, I'm going to Google Sun Tzu. Anybody know Sun Tzu? Sun Tzu was an ancient uh, Chinese, I hope I get that right, military strategist. Uh, He wrote a book called The Art of War centuries ago, and I've learned that it is still read after hundreds and hundreds of years in places like Maxwell Air Force Base at the War College. I've met 
students at the college who read ancient works on Sun Tzu. And one of the things Sun Tzu said is, in any battle, you've got to know your enemy. It's very hard to defeat someone you don't know you're fighting, right? You've got to know your enemy. You've got to think like they do. You've got to think about strategies. You've got to, you've got to kind of get in that framework. And if you don't know your enemy, you are very unlikely to succeed. Because you'll get hit in unexpected ways. Lewis writing the screw tape letters is an invitation to Christians to, for a moment, know your enemy. Use your imagination. Understand that there are these warped creatures who don't think like you do and who are out to destroy you. And there's this invitation to know your enemy. So how do, when we come to Paul, we say, Paul, who is the enemy? He's very clear, isn't he? In verse 11. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Here's the purpose, so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So he names the enemy who is attacking or warring against the people of God. And then he clarifies this a bit in verse 12. For our struggle, our struggle the battle, this warfare, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. Blood and flesh for Paul is one of the typical ways to just kind of talk about human life as we experience it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15 that, that flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God. That does not mean that physical creatures don't come into the kingdom because it's the whole thing is in the context of the resurrection of the body, all right, when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise the dead. Bodies going into the kingdom of God is the vision of the New Testament all the way through. But flesh and blood in that context, and flesh and blood, blood and flesh in this context, is kind of a typical way for the Bible, for Paul especially, to talk about the way we experience human life in this transitory nature, in bondage to decay, uh, wrestling with sin. This is, this is human life in the present. And he says, that the like, look around you that's not your enemy we sometimes think it is we'll come back to that a little more deeply in a moment but for now just sort of lodge it that there's no human being according to paul who is your enemy despite what we may think our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood blood and flesh but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul names the devil, and then he names all of these other invisible powers called rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil. And these are typical Jewish ways in the first century to talk about demonic powers. Right? So you've got sort of the devil, who's this lead demonic figure, and these other authorities, cosmic powers of darkness, who are associated with him in some subordinate role. Now, there's a lot to say about that. First, let me say this. When we start talking about devils and demons, there are two mistakes we can make. You may be tempted to make one of these mistakes right now. And Lewis kind of teases this at the beginning of Screwtape Letters. If you're interested in digging into that further, maybe a couple of you would even want to get together and have a little reading group and just read Screwtape together. I'd be fascinated to hear how that goes for you. One mistake is to assume there's no devil. 
right? Because after all, we live in an age and we've kind of made a lot of scientific progress and we can explain a lot of things. And, you know, back in the day, centuries ago, they explained things they didn't understand through angels and demons and spiritual beings. But we got, you know, we've, we've got, we live in a world and we've got a lot of knowledge and we've got a lot of scientists and they're doing a lot of good work and they, they can explain things that people didn't use to explain you know, before, and, and we know the world is just really what we see, and it, you know, it's material, and it's physical, and we don't need invisible spirit things to explain what we see, and so we just don't need to get carried away with that, that's not really a, a real thing, and let's not worry about it. So one mistake is assuming the devil is someone's imagination, assuming that there are or there are there there is nothing beyond what we can see or investigate with a telescope or a microscope right? assuming the world is purely physical material that there is no god no devil no angels no demons no spiritual reality no life after death we get a lot of pressure in that way right now don't we We've explored that together in different ways over the last couple of years, but there's a lot of pressure on that. Sophisticated people, educated people, don't believe in those fairy tales. The problem with that, if we want to be Bible people, is that Scripture clearly describes these sorts of invisible forces that are at work in destructive ways. And so we want to trust the Scriptures, and we want to do that without getting carried away. That's the second mistake. <laughs> Some folks believe in the devil and then give him way too much credit. So occasionally I'll meet folks who, uh, whenever anything bad happens, or maybe when they sin, they sort of say something like, uh, well, the devil made me do it. I won't ask if anyone said that before. But you've probably heard someone say it before. All right, so <laughs> it's not time for confession. You can do that later. The devil made me do it. And there's this one friend who uh, several years ago used to say that with some frequency. And I would always say, no, he didn't. Uh, he didn't have to. Your own sinful heart is entirely sufficient to lead you down the wrong path. And it needs to be saved and redeemed. Right. So the point there is, yes, there is this reality of the devil and demons and they are at work warring against the people of God in certain ways. That does not mean every bad thing that happens or every sinful action we engage in is necessarily caused, prompted, or created by devils or demons. Right? Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? Because... We have rebelled against our Creator <laughs> because our hearts are curved in on themselves when we come into this world, and we need Jesus and His gospel and the power of His Spirit and the workings of His grace to redeem us. We don't need the devil to get us in trouble. We're pretty good at that on ourselves. That is complicated by the fact that there are invisible spiritual forces that desire to destroy us. Okay, so two mistakes. 
We can pretend there is no devil, which plays right into his hands. Or we can see, as Lewis said, a devil behind every tree. An unhealthy obsession, excusing ourselves from any responsibility before God. We don't want to go down one of those two paths. We want to be thoughtful. We want to hear what the scriptures say. And we want to act in a way that is responsible in light of what the scriptures say. But the crucial thing is knowing there is an enemy and knowing who the enemy is. You can't win a battle. You don't know you're fighting. And you can't win a battle if you don't know who the enemy is. So Paul names the enemy, the devil, and then rulers, authorities, cosmic powers. As I said, these are typical ways to speak about demons in the ancient world if you're a Jewish person. It's crucial because it could seem almost discouraging. It's one thing to have to deal with people. <laughs> we can see people. We can kind of read the look on their faces, and maybe we know they're unhappy with us, or they've got it out for us. Or, you know, that's the sort of thing we can read sometimes. But if you're dealing with imp- invisible powers, you don't really know what's going on, and there's, a, there's some, that's kind of scary, and you know, how are they at work, and what am I working with here, and what am I fighting with here? It's crucial in that moment to remember that for Paul, in the scriptures, for us, these powers are defeated. Ephesians 1.21, Paul tells us that God put his power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above, listen carefully, verse 21, chapter 1, all rule, that sounds familiar, authority, that sounds familiar, power, that sounds familiar, and dominion. Sound familiar? So Jesus, you've got rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, typical ways to talk about demonic forces in the ancient Jewish world. Jesus has been what? Exalted above them. Then Paul says, you've got these spiritual forces, authorities, powers, dominions, things like that, that are warring against you. But remember who has been exalted above them. Jesus. And this on the church calendar is Ascension Sunday, where we are reminded and give thanks that for the radical world-transforming truth is that Jesus not only died and was not only resurrected, but has been enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from that place, he is ruling all things with wisdom. Some, not always, it's not always clear to us how these things work out, but he is wise and he is good and he is at work and nothing surprises him and nothing catches him off guard. There is no power that is invisible to him. There is nothing that outstrategizes him. There is no spirit. There is no demon. There is no force that gets one over on Jesus or comes around and outflanks him. He has been exalted above all powers. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And so if somebody says, where is your Jesus? The answer is, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. God has said to him, come and sit at my right hand and I will make the nations your inheritance. And for that, friend, let the nations be glad. 
because there's a good king on the throne. And no matter what it feels like, no matter how weird or scary or dangerous the world feels like, Jesus is Lord. No matter how it feels, Jesus is Lord and he is good. And that truth means that the powers warring against you have already been defeated. That does not mean they're still not trying to cause trouble. (laughs) It doesn't mean they're still not writhing and trying to strategize their way into some kind of effective derailing of your trust in Jesus. That's exactly what they're trying to do. But that we're not waiting for the outcome of the war. The the victory belongs to Jesus. Ephesians, like when you read Ephesians 6, you need to read it alongside Ephesians 1 about God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, who has lavished goodness on us, who has adopted us, and about Jesus who has been exalted above all the same powers who seek to destroy the people of God and every good thing that God has made. You can't win a battle you don't know you're fighting. You need to know and have confidence in Jesus that his victory is secure. And the skirmishes that happen in our daily lives are not the final word. The Lord Jesus is the final word. Those daily battles need to be named, and Jesus needs to be trusted. The battles need to be named, Jesus must be trusted. That brings us back to the question of who is not the enemy. I promised we'd look at that a little more carefully. Paul says, our battle is not against who? Blood and flesh. We said that is a way of kind of talking about human life in its present state. And it's crucial here to kind of take a look around because we are inclined to think our enemies are the folks in the other party or folks in that other country who seek to do us harm or folks in another church who maybe are being a little more successful than we are and we're kind of jealous of that. We're in competition with them. You see, if our true enemy can persuade us that the Republicans or the Democrats are the enemy, or the governor is our enemy, or the other Sunday school class is our enemy, or the pastor is our enemy, or that committee is our enemy, or the terrorists are our enemies, or the Muslims are our enemies, or the Chinese are our enemies, if they can persuade us that those folks are our enemies, who are we not focused on in terms of battle? Paul says, unquestionably your battle is not against blood and flesh G.K. Chesterton once said being a Christian is kind of like being a nurse in a hospital I'm paraphrasing where all the patients want to kill you (laughs) it's your job to doctor them 
they think you're their enemy. That's why we have partnerships with missionaries around the globe to help us remember and to help us work towards the evangelization and discipleship of every person on the planet. I get that's a tough thing to kind of reckon with. I'm not saying that nations, when faced with significant injustice, should not use force to stop it. If the Allies had not used force to stop Hitler when he decided it was cool to kill six million people, we would be culpable for that. You don't let maniacs destroy innocent people and call it just. You speak up and stand up for those who have no voice. That does not mean that the nations are not our mission field. I would rather see the most aggressive opponent of Christianity converted than killed. I would rather see that. Because our battle isn't against anybody with skin. Now sometimes human beings give themselves so deeply to rebellion. You know, think of people like Nazi Germany where, as I said, it's appropriate for nations justly to use force to stop it. It is the church's job to seek the conversion of the nations. It is the church's job to go baptize and teach. It is the church's commission to disciple the nations with a view to the earth being filled with the knowledge and glory of God because it is filled with human beings, flesh and blood people who have been born again and who belong to Jesus and who are motivated by the Spirit and who obey the Lord because they love Him. That's the vision we get in the Scriptures. That's why Paul planted churches all over the world in his day. That's why he traveled. That's why he risked his life. And it's telling that when you read letters like Philippians, and he's writing this from prison, and he's literally on death row waiting to find out, or potentially getting to death row, waiting to find out if he's going to be executed by the empire or whether he'll go on and get, like, get acquitted and get to continue his church planning mission. He's literally imprisoned by enemies of the gospel. And his posture is not antagonistic. He sees the prison guards as potential converts. I mean, just let that sink in. I mean, 
the empire is opposing the gospel. And Paul doesn't say, I got to fight against the emperor, and I got to fight against his representatives, and I've got to fight against those power players in the government, and I've got to fight against the soldiers who are keeping me locked in this prison. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm thankful to God that there's space for the gospel here. And the guys who keep the doors locked, they know Jesus. They're learning about Jesus. What would it look like if the church said, you know, there are a lot of people I don't like. There are a lot of people I struggle with. But at the end of the day, they're my mission, not my enemy. You can't win a battle you don't know you're fighting, and you certainly won't win if you pick the wrong enemy. And one of the strategies of the powers and rulers and authorities of darkness is to make us think the enemy is some person we despise who happens also to be made in the image of God, even though we are unwilling to see that. I struggle with that. <laughs> it's much easier to focus my aggression on people I can see. <laughs> but if you can see them, they're not your enemy. If you can see them, they are not your enemy, whether we like it or not. So how do we fight? Can't win a battle, you don't know you're fighting. We now know we're fighting. How do we proceed? Verse 13. Take up the armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, verse 14. Notice how many times the word stand is repeated in just a couple of verses. Jesus is looking for people to stand and persevere in the gospel. Verse 14, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the image is of a soldier, isn't it? And maybe you kind of got in your mind uh, the pictures of Roman soldiers, maybe from your Sunday school curriculum if you're the kids, and maybe from a movie if you've seen a movie about the Roman Empire lately. You kind of know what a soldier looks like and what the armor looks like. Paul's kind of drawing on that imagery of a warrior, but he's reappropriating it, isn't he? Because the armor and the battle aren't against physical enemies, they're against invisible spiritual ones. And so, like normal swords and shields don't typically work against demons, you need spiritual armor. And so he kind of takes this image and invests it with the central values of the Christian faith. The armor is the armor of God because it is received from God. If you want to stand against the schemes of the devil, you need to be resourced by God. Let me say this too. 
Remember, the devil and God are not equal and opposites. Um, the devil is not some uncreated, all-powerful, evil thing. He is a creature, and he is on a leash, and he is not able to do anything he wants and everything he wants. He is under and within the providence and power of God. That is mysterious, and we can talk about it more at some point if you like to, but it's crucial to remember this is not an equal and opposite kind of thing. Jesus reigns. So the armor is from God. There are six pieces. It's striking that five of them are defensive. Breastplates for soldiers are about not getting shot in the heart with an arrow. That's a defensive piece. Shields, same thing. Helmets, you want to keep your head intact, you wear a helmet, it's a defensive piece of armor. Same with uh, the kind of shoe, shin guard pieces and the belt. It kind of holds all that together. The sword, the last piece, is the one offensive weapon. So you got six pieces of armor. Five of them, five out of six, are defensive in nature. So you want to stand. Sometimes uh, in sports you'll hear them say the best offense is a good defense. And maybe there's something to that in this text as well. So we are told about the belt of truth. The Christian's ability to stand depends on the trustworthiness of the gospel, the scriptures, and of God. Everything depends on the reality that God is truth. Those invisible enemies will lie to you. If you read through screw tape letters, Lewis sort of reminds you at the front. He says, Remember, like demons don't tell the truth. <laughs> so you're going to read things and you're going to think, Wow, that's kind of weird, but they're lying to you. So you just. Jesus' truth, devil's lies. You want to stand? Stand on truth. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. Righteous, I mean, these are such provocative images, aren't they? Because righteousness is a big concept in the New Testament. And it, it sorts out in different ways. And if you read through the Scriptures in the Old Testament, God's righteousness is His, it's the fact that He keeps His promises. He shows up to care for His covenant people, to minister to them, to rescue them. He, he's promised to be their God. They will be His people. He's promised to, to care for them and defend them and fight for them. His righteousness is that aspect of His character whereby He keeps His promises. But righteousness is also something He declares over His people, isn't it? Righteousness is something that Jesus says, you're in the right. You're justified. You belong to me. You used to be guilty. Your sin defined you. You rebelled against me. You came into this world broken. You came into this world with that inwardly curved heart. But I died for you. I bled for you. My body was broken for you. I took your place, as the hymn says, in our place condemned. He stood and he exchanges positions with us and receives the condemnation that we deserve so that there's nothing left for us and God can speak his word of pardon, not guilty, justified, in the right. And that central truth, friends, when you are assailed, when you are warred against, when you are criticized, and when, when, 
when the enemy of your soul seeks to bring doubt into your mind that Jesus loves you, you remember He has spoken over you. You are mine. You are justified. You are in the right. Your sins are forgiven. I do not condemn you. And if Jesus brings no charge against you, no one else can either. That's what it means to be justified. The charges have been dropped. You want to stand, you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ says over you, not guilty, accepted, justified. You belong to me, Jesus says. Shoes. You wouldn't want to go into battle without your boots, would you? Your feet covered with whatever makes you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. You want to know how to stand against the enemy of your soul? You keep the gospel on your lips day and night. Christ loved us and gave himself for us. He died for our sins and was raised on the third day. If that central truth, that the crucified Messiah has been raised, he died for our sins, he is raised to bring us into the new creation, to give us new life, and through trusting him, through relying on him, not of ourselves, he brings us into this new reconciled relationship with the, with the God who made us in his image. You keep those words on your lips and in your heart 24-7, the wiles of the enemy will not be able to stand against you. The gospel is the power of God. We lose ground when we forget the gospel, friends. We lose ground when we get distracted from the gospel. We get unsettled. The earth beneath our feet gets shaky. It begins to crumble. When? When we lose sight of the gospel. That's one reason we come to church on Sundays so somebody can preach the gospel to us every seven days. And then you go home and you preach it to your spouse and you preach it to your kids and you preach it to your coworkers and you preach it to your neighbors and you keep the gospel on your lips. Cover your feet with whatever makes you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. That Jesus has come to fill your life with peace, not war. To fill your life with reconciled joy. You want to stand against the enemy? You keep the gospel of the power of God and his perfect love front and center in your life all the time. You lose the gospel, you are far more likely to lose the battle. The shield of faith, faith language as well. Again, I'm, as I've reflected on these passages, I think, man, this, this language just shows up in so many different ways. And faith in the ancient world for Paul is, is not just kind of, well, I've got the creeds in my head and I believe that and I can say it and, and I'm not crossing my fingers behind my back when I talk about the resurrection. I believe that but it's this deeper thing. Like, do I, do I trust him? Am I loyal to him? 
in those moments of temptation, and the enemy wants me to be distracted by, you know, the news or the game or the, the hunt or the, like, I'm getting distracted and I'm kind of veering off the curve here. Am I loyal to Jesus in that moment? And that doesn't mean just kind of sit in your room and do nothing but think about Jesus. You have to engage, and Paul's going to talk about that at the end of the book, at the end of the letter. You have to engage the world, but you have to engage the world from a posture of loyalty to Jesus. And if my identity, if I'm defined by loyalty to Jesus, fidelity to Jesus, uncompromising trust in what he says and what he calls me to do 24-7, there's no space for the enemy of your soul to get a hold in your life. You have to stop being loyal to Jesus to give yourself to the end can't do both. Helmet of salvation. Paul wants his readers in the first century and us in the 21st century to remember that Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. It is from God it is a gift from God. It is nothing we accomplish. I cannot outfit myself with my salvation. I lack the power to accomplish it. For Paul, this will guard you. The powers have been defeated. You belong to Jesus. You take your brain and you wrap that truth around your head and your face. Everything you need is accomplished by his sufficiency. All of it. We come last to the sword. Paul tells us the sword, the one offensive weapon, once again is nothing I can conjure up. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's empowered by the Spirit of God. It's the Word of God. You want to fight? You want to go on the offensive? You better know your Bible. You don't know your Bible? It's like a warrior in a battle. You've seen the movies, right? Sword gets knocked out of his hand and you're helpless. You want to win? Don't think you can do it without this book. You want to stand against the enemy of your soul? Don't even begin to think you cannot do you can do it without the word of God. Jesus himself, when tempted by the devil in the wilderness, does what? You know this, everyone knows this. What does he do? He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Bible. He is the Word of God incarnate. He is the Word of God in the flesh. And when he is tempted, he quotes the Old Testament. Most of us don't know the Old Testament. And that's the place Jesus himself goes to fend off the devil. Who would even begin to think about walking into a battle? without their weapon. The fact that we don't give ourselves to the scriptures excessively means we're in a battle we don't know we're fighting. Listen, friends, I'm about to, <laughs> I'm going to say something very blunt, and it will probably hurt someone's feelings. If you don't read your Bible every day, you are in a battle you don't know you're fighting. If you do not meditate on the word of God, 
No, I'm not trying to be mean, friends. I, I, lo- I love you. And I don't want you to get slaughtered by the devil. And the one way you can avoid that is with this book. It is true. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. And it is the one weapon that God in his grace has given you to fend off the attacks of the one who would want to drag your soul to the pits of hell. And we toss it on the coffee table or leave it on the bookshelf. And we don't give it the time that is necessary to actually be able to draw upon it in the moment of testing. Hear your pastor say, don't neglect your weapon. You can't fight this battle with the normal sorts of weapons that you can pick up or load or unsheathe. You can only fight this battle with this book and the words printed on these pages. And if we do not attend to it, if we do not attend to it, we will fall. Last question I want to ask you is, who are you fighting next to? We tend to think, I think, of spiritual warfare in primarily individual terms. Enemies attacking me, I got to fight this battle, got to go pray, and yeah, that's there, that's real, that's fine. The question, though, is, because any soldier in the Roman army would have known, you only really stand if you're standing in line with your brothers at arms. Who are you fighting alongside? You need to know your enemy. (laughs) You need to know your armor and your weapon. You need to know who's fighting beside you if you want to know the battle and win it. So who are you fighting alongside? And you see this in Paul. He says to the Ephesians in verse 18, pray for me, verse 19, pray for me. So that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul is saying, I need you fighting alongside me. Here is the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle to the nations, who wrote a good quarter of the New Testament. And he calls out the unnamed Christians in Ephesians and says, I need you to fight beside me. I can't do this by myself. We like to think we can do things by ourselves. We cannot. So who are you fighting alongside? Paul fights alongside the Ephesians. He invites them to fight alongside him. Are you fighting alongside your kids? Are you giving them the armor? Are you giving your kids the one weapon that will preserve them when the enemy of their soul comes? Are you giving your kids the word of God, the sword of the spirit? Are you fighting alongside your children? Are you fighting alongside your spouse? Maybe you're in a band meeting with some other folks in the church, a small group for encouragement and accountability and discipleship. Are you fighting alongside your band members? Are you fighting alongside the folks in your Sunday school? I wonder, as I was thinking about this this morning, what would it even look like, maybe I'm going to put it on some teachers, for our Sunday school teachers to gather from time to time just to pray for each other in their Sunday school classes? You know, what would it look like for us to say, hey, you know, let's carve out an hour or so this week and just come together and let's pray for the people who come to our Sunday school classes. Like, we don't typically intermix with our classes oftentimes. What if we just kind of 
But if we did that and the leader said, hey, you know, I'm going to pray for your folks and you can pray for my folks in this way and we'll pray for each other's folks together. Maybe that's what it looks like to fight alongside us. And maybe that's what it looks like to fight against the sorts of factions that easily emerge in, in churches. You're constantly being invited to join a serve team. Are you fighting alongside the folks on your serve team? When you gather to greet folks at the door or to punch names into a computer or to whatever it is, links on the internet or moving furniture around, maybe, maybe it's not just a job, maybe it's an opportunity to gather and say, hey, can you pray for me this week? I need somebody to fight beside me. What would it be like to be a part of a fellowship of Christians that sort of was just, just unswervingly committed to fight alongside one another? This week it was a joy in my heart to watch probably close to 50 people gather in that sanctuary and fight for a man named Bill Honeycutt to pray unceasingly. That shouldn't be the exception to the rule. It should be the daily practice of every believer. Let's not forget that every single morning when we awake, we put our feet on a battleground. And there is an enemy who would rather you not know his face or his tactics. He would rather you believe he didn't exist because he knows you can't win a battle you don't know you're fighting. What if every day we are armed with the armor of God, with confidence in Jesus to fight on our behalf, to equip us with the word that is true, to make us whole and make us able to stand. The only question is, do you want to stand? You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hall United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.